other people what they think happened. And most of all, we want to facilitate healing so people know the truth and can deal with it. So even with what happened during COVID and the exit of our pastor, which was done during COVID, so we couldn't have the meetings we expected, there are questions. I know they exist because you've come to me. Your name will not be mentioned. We may go to you directly and talk to you. We do have your name. You can't fill out the survey without adding your name. But we will answer those questions without naming you. So do not be concerned. It's only there so we can come to you directly if it's something that's much more personal. And we want to update our files and make sure after COVID we know if people have moved around or have new phone numbers. I want to encourage you to ask because we cannot address what we do not know. And I want to encourage you to find out the truth and not fill in the blanks because some of the things I've heard are not true and they will have to be dealt with. I know that's a bit of a heavy, but the positive of dealing with it is God's got a plan. And we are going to be able to take that past and push it aside very soon once we address it and excitedly move forward. That's why we're starting Blueprint. This is us going to God and saying, God, what do you have for us? The goal here is not to tell you what to do, but rather push us into the presence of God and let God be God. Too often we try and do things on our own understanding, our own desire. But God has a plan that so outranks what you're thinking today. The question is, will you join him? Will you listen to that plan? I've often said I'm kind of embarrassed because it's my book and I hold it up. I'm not embarrassed of the book. I'm embarrassed that my name's on it because it feels very self-serving. But I know churches that have used it, and I know people actually that have, are quoting. It's really weird when you find out a pastor phone and says, I quoted your book. It's kind of odd. But I do believe that this book, rather than giving you answers, will push you closer to God and it'll give you an idea of how to weather the storm. COVID will end, but your life will always have storms. And a house built on the rock will survive, built on God. But one built on sand, on our own understanding, is going to be a problem. So I pray that this will be exciting and drive us forward to seeking God, because God is ready to do great things. I believe that. I believe as God, God is waiting for us to say, what do you want, God? Use me. It was over two years ago that I was dropped off at the front doors in Newmarket of the ER. To my surprise, when I walked in the doors, the ER was completely empty. This does not happen at 4 a.m. in any hospital, especially in Newmarket. Not only was there no one there, there were no staff there. I hobbled my way over and sat down on the green chairs, which I'm assuming by now with all the sanitizing and stuff are probably this chalky color. You've noticed that, eh? Everything's got this chalky film. But this was, this was before COVID. Everything was beautiful and pristine and clean, but it was so clean there wasn't even human beings breathing the same air. And I sat there waiting my turn to get help. I was in a fair amount of pain, and it was not the nicest wait. As a matter of fact, I can still see it in my head, sitting in that chair. The pain was so bad, I actually do have, or had up to a few months ago, flashbacks where if I, give, I actually had pain, my brain would take me there and I would freeze. And I remember sitting there and waiting and waiting and waiting. I'd been in that hospital three times, so this would be the third time over the past three months. The first two times, the place was crowded. It's a hospital where you're in the hallways, moving your legs out of the way as they wheel someone down for an x-ray if they're the lucky one who gets an x-ray. There's people sitting there with the fangled arms and messed up bodies from playing hockey because Newmarket's a hockey town. 
just waiting for someone to set their wrist or whatever it is. It's a crowded place. But this night, there was no one there. Finally, finally, someone came out from the back to the intake desk and sat down. They started the standard questions. If you've ever been in the ER, usually ask you what you're there for. I said I was in a little pain and need some help. Then they, you know, they take your blood pressure and stuff. Mine's always high anyway. It doesn't matter how many pills I take. And they just go, are you sure you're okay? Yes, it's the hospital. Then they ask, are you allergic to anything? Yes, aspirin, just don't give me any, you'll be fine. Then they ask for your medication list. My wife knows I carry a copy because I got caught in an ambulance once being asked what I was on. I couldn't remember. Your list of things to do is shorter than my medication list. I keep Big Pharma in business. That's what we'll say. And I handed it to her. She picked it up. She looked at it. I could see her eyes open up like saucers. She looked at it, went down and said, you shouldn't be taking those. And I'm, I know what she's talking about. Those painkillers are highly addictive. You shouldn't be taking those. And she began to lecture me as I sat there biting my lip. And finally, I interjected and said, I started them a few days ago. You see, she read those painkillers and said, he must be here. I know why he's here. He wants more painkillers. He's an addict seeking drugs. It's kind of funny. The kicker of the whole thing was, as I sat beside her, maskless, because we didn't have masks on then, you could smell the reason she was not in the room. She had gone out for a smoke break. There was an addict in the room, but it wasn't me, it was her. She left me waiting because she had to have a cigarette. But her knowledge, what she knew based on her training as a nurse and her experience at hospital automatically made her jump to an assumption that I was an addict seeking pills. A little knowledge is a dangerous thing. Those who possess a little knowledge often don't have enough knowledge to know they don't have enough knowledge. This tongue-cramping, cheek-biting, false-teeth-dislodging statement reveals something. We have limitations and flaws to what we know, and they cause us to act in ways that we probably shouldn't. We think we know. I think sometimes we think we're the smartest person in the room. Look at me, I know more than everyone else. But it's still only a little knowledge. First of all, I was told that nurse should not have said a word to me. That's not her position to do that. It should have been the doctor. But second of all, she had no idea what had been going on. I had been in the hospital two times before and actually said, I don't want painkillers. I had left the second time when the doctor handed them to me, basically. The prescription said, you take these or you're not going to make it. It's too much pain to handle. So I did take them. But instead of one every four hours, I spread them out over a week because I didn't want to get addicted. She didn't know that my body had started to tear apart because of the inflammation in my body. As a matter of fact, the doctors didn't know what was going on. I went on the roof one day, got off the roof, and suddenly couldn't walk because I tore my meniscus just standing there. Then I fell on a set of crutches, and they shoved my shoulders up. That shouldn't be that bad. I had multiple tears in both rotator cuffs, but no one knew, and I lived this way in pain because Dave Peaver doesn't take painkillers because he's too tough and he's not an addict. That's how I live my life. I got scolded after I had my gallbladder out because I said, I got lots of painkillers left. And the nurse that I was talking to said, you realize you don't heal as well when you're constantly in pain. She says, I know you don't want to be an addict, but you need to take them. But here's a nurse that's assuming the opposite of me because she knows, she's been trained, she knows everything. All I wanted was a sleeping pill. I'd spent two months 
where I'd slept no more than three hours a night, and I was going crazy. My body no longer allowed me to sleep because I'd get to sleep, turn, and the pain would be so bad I'd be almost sick to my stomach. I just wanted to sleep. I didn't want her painkillers. But she assumed on her knowledge that I was just there trying to get high. Like the other people you hear in the hallway, oh, I just need a little Percocet. You don't need to check me out. Just give me a prescription for Percocet. That wasn't Dave. I just want a sleeping pill. The other thing she didn't notice, because her knowledge was so pinpointed, was the hospital was empty. No one was there. One family we saw the whole time we were there. Because it was the first day of COVID being announced in Ontario. Even the drug seekers weren't there that night. So why was I there with my compromised immune system? Because I just wanted to sleep. But you see, she knew stuff and she assumed based on what she knew, she knew how to deal with it. I left there with a prescription for sleeping pills, not painkillers. And that's what I asked for. But to me, that day will stick in my mind as an example of how we live our life. We think we know stuff. And we don't know enough. We don't even know enough to recognize that maybe we could be wrong. That we're flawed. Life is about experience and influence. Memory retention, upbringing, observation. It all pours into our little brains and we come up with a conclusion. Add to that the fact we are human which means we see things from perspectives that may not be accurate. We tend to think we have it all figured out based on our knowledge, influenced by everything we've gone through. But the fact is, none of us are perfect. So every view we have is already flawed by our own imperfection and our own assumptions. The most brilliant people have a little knowledge, maybe a little more than us, but it's still limited. Geniuses have still a little knowledge. They have a lot of knowledge in one area, but they don't know everything in all areas. I am not the sharpest tool in the drawer, but even the sharpest tool in the drawer doesn't make a very good hammer. We all have a limited use and understanding. And as Christians, it's incredibly dangerous when we rely on what we know. Most of you would say, other than today, so let's go back to yesterday, that the sun rises in the east, then we have a huge storm, and it sets in the west. Do you realize how flawed that statement is? And I bet you use it every day. The sun doesn't move, or at least not enough for us to notice. The flat earthers here, just plug your ears for a while. Technically, according to my understanding of science, and it's about this big, the world does this and this around the sun. The round world I'm talking about, not the flat one. So we need to understand that a group of people a long time ago saw this thing moving through the sky in their, their estimation or in their what they saw, and they assumed that they were standing still. They were not. The sun was standing still. Their knowledge based on what they saw was what they thought to be truth, and we would say that's ridiculous. I think we'd all fall off the earth if it wasn't spinning properly. I don't know what would happen. Again, science is not my thing. But it wouldn't work if the world didn't move and the sun did. I think it's funny. It's like sinful human beings to think that everything revolves around them as opposed to the earth revolving around something else. I want to be careful. I don't want you to think it's hopeless. My knowledge is all messed up. It's so limited. It's flawed that I have no hope. But I also want to remind you that Satan's trickery is based in us thinking we know what's going on. 
thinking we fully comprehend God or enough that we can figure out what's wrong and what's right. Our sin nature makes us think we know stuff. But the one who's vying for your mind, the evil one, wants you to think you know enough because then he can trick you. You don't believe Satan is tricky? I don't think we talk about this enough. I think we've written him off as totally defeated. That is not true. He is defeated in the sense he has no power, but he still is the ruler of this world. Paul puts it this way in his letter to the Corinthians. Chapter 11, verse 14. For Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. In our own knowledge, we don't notice that the evil one kind of tricks us into thinking he is good. We need God to decipher what is of God. You see, even our idea of Jesus is flawed. We apply sinful knowledge to what we think Jesus is. Everyone did. The people in Jesus' time applied their sinful knowledge and they killed him because they didn't fully understand. He was just an interruption. In our own knowledge, we cannot define even what Jesus is. How can we tell what God is doing? We need discernment. Discernment is a gift from God. We get fooled by what appears to be godly because we know stuff. We know. We've read our Bible. We've been to church every Sunday. We know stuff. Without revelation, we can be enticed to live in our own knowledge. Without reliance on the Holy Spirit, we become reliant on what we know. And nothing goes beyond what we know in our limits. Our own power, our own way, our own plan becomes the driving force behind us. But God has so much more. The problem is we don't have the capacity to fully know and understand what that is. In our humanity, in our sinfulness, it allows Satan to insert the ways of man and camouflage them as the revelations of God because we depend on what we know. And God is just so much bigger. Sometimes if Christianity seems easy, it's probably because it's not really Christianity. It's just an easy humanistic way. God says he will support us through the struggles, but there's still going to be struggles. Christianity isn't easy. It's not for the faint at heart. It is a crutch because we are all wounded by our sinfulness. But it's also about being a new creation. So if what you know is enough, then you can't be a new creation because everyone else knows basically the same things. So if we don't know that we don't know enough, we become lax, comfortable, and unaware of what's going on. And we just sit here and wait to die. You are here because God wants to do something through you and with you. He wants to use you for his incredible plan, and he wants to change you to be more and more like him. But what you know would say, I know Jesus, I'm saved, I'm okay. God has incredible things for you, incredible things for the church, but what you know is stagnating you. You are stuck with a flawed perception as we all are, limited by our own human understanding. And even if we realize that we have a limited knowledge, we tend to chase the famous people. We go grab a book on church growth because they know stuff, so we'll read their book. Often we chase other humans, or we chase the charisma of the pulpit instead of chasing after God. In history, it seems about every 50 years we have something we like to call revival, but a move of God. 
that moves beyond just one church and throughout quite often a continent. It's about every third generation, it seems, that God chooses to move in a way that's tangible. Some historians will tell you that that first generation experiences it. They tell that second generation. So the second generation is excited because their parents really experienced it and and they feel that power because the people relating it saw it firsthand. But by the third generation, they're not nearly as excited because they're not connected to the people who experienced it. And it seems to be the reason why God moves in approximately 50-year spans. It's not he's not moving, but there's something miraculous. It's not happening anymore, or at least that we know of. There are little pockets that happen, but it doesn't spread. There's no great awakening that seems to be happening. I hear Christians complaining. The world is getting more and more sinful. When these great revivals happened, people were on their knees. Not planning a program, on their knees, crying out for God to move. But we have muted God's move with our own knowledge. We've replaced revival with what we can reproduce. Every major church movement that I can remember since I became a pastor has more to do with coming up with the right program and marketing ploy than using God's power at all. Butts in seats. What if we went for God's will, God's way to put people in heaven? Every major move has been about how excited can we get, how much we can build the next megachurch. You know what the worst part is? Often what we don't see is the number of Christians doesn't change. They just move from church to church to the next best program. What if people were moving towards God instead of towards the next best church? What if we said, God, what do you want to do? Because my knowledge tells me I want to be somewhere exciting. I want to be where they have programs. That's my human knowledge. I should want to be where God's moving. I should want to be on my knees in front of God. I have to admit, often I'm more excited about the programs. They're tangible. I can figure them out. I can count the people. But it's horrible to sit or to stand or to kneel in private and say, God, what? I don't know what to do. That time of pause and holding on goes against everything I know. There is an urgency we create in church that I don't believe God has. God knows what's happening. He's not up in heaven going, oh my goodness, what do I do? And running around frantically. God's just waiting for us to get on our knees and say, God, I don't know, but you do. I don't know what to do, but God, tell me. A little knowledge is a dangerous thing because I don't think we realize we don't have enough knowledge to recognize that God has so much more and wants to reveal it to us in ways that we cannot understand because we come caught up in human ideas. I'm going to read a verse to you from Proverbs that you've probably heard in the KJV version. So I'm going to do it in NIV and then move to King James. Proverbs 29:18 says, "Where there is no revelation, the people cast off restraint, but blessed is he who keeps the law." The version you've probably heard because it's used actually in church growth books, "Where there is no vision, the people perish." You know what we do with that one? We do the Walmart thing. We need a company vision. Our vision is to take over the world and be the biggest retailer or whatever that is. The truth of that is, Proverbs says, where there's no prophetic revelation, 
It isn't about a vision, although every church should know what God calls them to do. It's about God revealing what he wants. It's not about coming up with a way to do stuff. It's about surrendering to God's way of doing stuff. For the sake of the book Blueprint, which we have run out of, and if you want a copy, there's more coming next week. I did not anticipate its popularity. I forgot it's a captive audience, so maybe I should have. But we will have more. But for the sake of the book, I'm going to quote it this way. Where people do what they know instead of seeking God's revelation, there is nothing to keep them from a dangerous thing, from being stuck in what they know. A little knowledge informs us, it tells us things, we can observe things, we can experience them. It gives us insight into good things, but your knowledge cannot reveal God's plan because God's plan is so far beyond what you can ever know. I think we're just too darn smart for our own good. God wants to do so much more. If God showed up today here and did miraculous things, I think most of us would run away because it would be odd and we couldn't understand it. Now think of the day of Pentecost, the greatest marketing ploy of all. Actually, it wasn't at all. What a horrible speech. Peter gets up, filled with the Spirit, and says, you killed Jesus, basically. And by the way, you need to follow him. That's not a good marketing ploy. We need to soft pedal that one. You know, you probably shouldn't have done it. And people did get hurt, but you know, they're, they're, you're forgiven. It's okay. They were cut to the heart by some of the most vile words to a Jew. You killed the promised one. To a Jew, that was painful and hurtful. And God's spirit moved. People were saved. And what were they doing before that? Well, we plan our programs and get all excited. They were in an upper room praying and praying. And they didn't move until the Spirit fell and led them outside of that building. Do we know of churches that do that today? Revival came on the day of Pentecost because they were praying. And it has come every other time because people pray, not because they program or market. As people cut to the core by their own sinfulness because the truth is revealed. And then relieved in freedom as they rejoice in God and what God has for them. See, as a church, we're trying to figure out what God has for us as a plan. Are we seeking the next pastor or are we seeking God? Is it our goal to find a pastor to give us vision or is it to have God's prophetic vision given to us and to find the person that God has found for us to lead us in the direction God already has given us? That is the way God works. He puts the right people in the right place to carry out his plan. But when we seek people, we follow people, not God. We as a church have struggled to find the person that will lead us. Maybe we need to struggle to find God's plan and let God lead us. No human being is without flaw, but if we have a vision, a prophetic vision from God, where God says, we need, you need to do this to fulfill my plan, we already have the guardrails. We have the restraints of a perfect plan. We know where God is taking us, and we can hold to account anyone who's in leadership to that plan. See, I can tell you what I want in the next pastor at my next church. And you can tell me what you want in the next pastor based on what you've been through, what's gone well in your life. But can you tell me what God wants for the church and therefore what God wants in a pastor? 
If we are forced to our needs, we are forced out of our own head and our own ideas and what we know. We know we want a full church. That's the human numbers. God's number is a full heaven. Whether they come here or someone else, somewhere else, who cares? The goal is to build the kingdom of God, not the kingdom of grace or any other church. But general knowledge is we're successful if the seats are filled. In revivals in the past, general knowledge was if we let God do it, he will do it and we'll get out of the way. What I know is dangerous because it conforms to human ideals, not God's. The blueprint for our church and our lives will never become more than we know. We will be stagnant if all we do is try to avoid the negatives of the past and seek after the highs instead of seeking God. God has a plan. He wants to reveal it to us, restrain us within its perfection, define us by his plan, and empower us by a move of his Holy Spirit. God is waiting to step in. Will we invite him or will we stay in our own heads what we know and what makes us comfortable? I really do believe this church could be the center of a revival. We got to stop planning stuff out for God in place of God and let God do the job. God is perfect, your ideas are not. Sorry, neither are mine. But oh, there's such peace when you let the perfect one run the church. You let the perfect one plot out the course for the church instead of your own knowledge, which is limited and flawed. Any transition, any church, this should be the verse that they hang on to or the verses. I believe these here stop us from saying, hey, I know what's going on. Paul writes in his letter to the Ephesians, now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. To him who is able to do more than you know. To him that is able to do more than you can imagine or conjure up, be all power. Let him be the leader of the church. Let him be the one that leads us. It's a hard change because we've been taught for a long time now the right programs, the right people, the big church. Only God can grow his church. Only God changes hearts. Only God takes us from the old creation to the new creation. And knowledge is the old creation. Relationship and submission to God is the new creation that God calls us to be. I want to challenge us as a church to get on our knees. Get out of trying to create a system and let God be the creator of his perfect plan. Will we surrender to God? Will we say what I know no longer matters, only what you want, God, only what is more than I can imagine or ever comprehend? To you be the power in the church. To you be the glory. Will we let him reveal to us at grace and as individuals where we're going to go? Or we'll just rely on what we know, what seems to have always worked, and just kind of hunker down until God calls us home and then we don't have to worry about it anymore. Do you trust your own knowledge? Because our own knowledge is a dangerous thing. We often don't know what we don't know. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, rid us of ourselves. Remove from us that desire to think that we know everything. 
God, make us so humble that we just give in to you. I pray for this church, God, that you will bring revival, that people will be on their knees, not planning, God, but letting you plan. God, make us open, empty vessels filled with your spirit moving forward. God, change us. God, stop us from being a people that think they know and make us a people that all we know is you. You are holy, you are worthy, you are all-powerful. God, let us give over to you. Change us, make us new, make us just like you. In your name we pray.